Action Park Media. The brashness that he showed off the field came through on the field. What's your response to people who say, well, he's a jerk and he's obnoxious? So what? Ryan didn't give a rat's ass, man. If you were not in his circle, he did not care. And Ryan was not trying to watch his tongue. He told you exactly what he thought about you, whether it was right or wrong. He, he was at times difficult to coach. He still made news, confronting a heckling fan at a practice. No. You heard me, you heard all the fans. Right, right. Ryan Leaf has been um, suspended um, and fined for conduct detrimental to the club. He bounced around the league with brief stops in Tampa Bay, Dallas, and a training camp run in Seattle before walking away in 2002. Over his four-year career, Ryan Leaf earned more than $13 million. In that time, he threw just 14 touchdowns, had 36 interceptions, and a career record of 4-17 and 17 as a starter. Nobody felt sorry for Ryan Leaf. Get rid of his ass. You're now listening to Bust, the Ryan Leaf story. And so I walked away. I told people I retired, but who retires at 28 years old? I felt like I could just disappear into the ether. No one, you know, I don't have to hear the criticism anymore. I don't have to deal with the media anymore. I don't have to fail over and over and over anymore. I didn't consider how I was doing mentally. And I also didn't consider what the fallout was going to be when I finally gave it up. Because at least when I was still playing, they couldn't call me a bust yet. They could always say you were headed in that direction, but I always had a chance to perform on the field and showcase enough where it's like, oh shit, I, you know, I forgot how damn talented he is, you know? But when you retire, there's no more of that. There's no more act of contrition on your part in terms of play. Now, it's all the hindsight 2020 people are going like, what a what an absolute boneheaded draft mistake. This guy's the biggest bust of all time. And I didn't realize how much what other people thought of me affected my mental health, right? And so going away, I thought it would all kind of disappear. I would just disappear and not, the rhetoric and the talk would disappear. And it didn't because as soon as I walked away, Rodney Harrison, who was one of my best friends in San Diego, was like, the spoiled brat just took the money and ran. Now at 45 years old, I know he was the best friend in the world because he was actually showing me the mirror all the time. Like, this is who you fucking are. When I walked away and did that, that's exactly who I was. I was this guy that just kind of quit and gave up and took the money and ran. But when I walked away, I didn't do anything. I just walked away. I didn't like go seek any transitional help. The NFL didn't have any transitional help at the time. They've developed some here in the last few years called the Legends Community which they brought me into the fold because I'm a perfect example of transitioning poorly and not having the resources available to me. But they didn't exist back then. They kind of said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Thanks for nothing, pretty much. And so you build a resentment towards the NFL. And then you don't have a home because I performed so poorly and it was such a toxic environment. That's where I started. That's where I was drafted. That should be like a, a alumni, right? I didn't have that. I, didn't, I couldn't go back there. I couldn't walk into Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego to go back to a game. I would get booed. I can't go to Tampa or Dallas because those were just stops along the way. I really wasn't part of those programs. 
Seattle. I didn't even play a game. So I was this guy that was the second pick in the NFL draft, and I didn't feel like I had a home anywhere. My alma mater where I went to college, where I was supposed to be a hero, they were like, oh, you fucked it up, man. You embarrassed us. You didn't represent us well. What do I do? I just, I go back to San Diego where I'm hated. So I started just becoming this recluse. I, you know, started being in my home all the time. I built this beautiful $2 million home on a golf course, kind of overlooking the ocean in Del Mar. And I figured, okay, I'm going to go to work for my then wife's father who worked in the finance part of it. I took my series seven. I was just, I was going to be a kind of a sports business development, bring in my friends and clients, Gary Payton, you know, hopefully use my contact with Kobe Bryant, let my father-in-law invest their money and stuff like that. That's how I thought I was going to do it. Well, that's how I thought I'd keep the lifestyle up that kept my ex-wife in the clothes she needed, the houses we wanted, the cars, all the things that, that come with it. But when you go from making $5 million a year and then and, and spending like you make $5 million a year to, you know, less, much less, and you are mentally ill, you don't really know what to do. I escaped. I drank my face off. I felt important because I was no longer playing anymore. And sure enough, about three months after I had quit and, you know, I had just tried to block out all the noise from the distractors over the fact that I was this giant bust, the fact that I wasn't making all this money anymore. Fight Night in Vegas is the closest thing to, I think, the adrenaline in the air that I had on game days. That was the closest thing. Like, you know, those 30 minutes of lead up to and then the fight was amazing for me. So I loved going to fights. I would go to fights any chance I got. And I would get to sit ringside and, you know, it was just all about being seen. But there was always one problem because by taking the tickets and being quasi-famous, the MC would announce celebrities in the audience. And so they announced, you know, Tiger Woods and Charles Barkley's in the audience and the crowd's just going nuts, plotting. And then they announce my name. And I was just sitting there going, please don't just let me just be here. And they say my name, and the whole fucking MGM Grand just boos and hisses. And it's not like that hadn't happened before, right? It happens all the time when you're playing in an opposing team stadium. But you have this armor on. You have this helmet and these shoulder pads, and it almost emboldens you a little bit. Like, this was, like, stripped raw. I'm just this fucking loser who failed and is being haunted in front of everybody. I, I do believe you're a drug addict long before you ever take a drug, once you understand what this all means. And my drug of choice my whole life was competition, and that no longer existed. My addict mind heard, not only are you a shitty football player, Ryan, but you are a horrible human being. That's what those boos and hisses told me that night. And sure enough, that evening I would go to a bunch of parties where there were Hall of Famers, Super Bowl champions, people in, in my world that were successes or who I felt were successes. I was going to walk into those rooms where I always felt judged and less than. And sure enough, early on one of those parties that night, I walked into one of those rooms and felt all the eyes and the judgment. That's also the narcissist in you where you believe everybody's looking at you, but you walk in the room, probably nobody even fucking cares that you're in there. But anyway, a, an acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin that night. 
And it's not like I hadn't had Vicodin before. I've had multiple surgeries leading up to it. And I, but I never abused it, right? I knew it worked. It was for acute pain. And when I was in acute physical pain, I took it. It got me through it. I was taking it to, to kill the pain. They're called painkillers, right? For a reason. This would be the first night that I was actually going to abuse it and take it for another pain, for like this emotional pain that was existing. And so I took a couple pills and mixed them with all the alcohol we were drinking that night in and out of those parties, and it worked. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. I didn't feel any of that judgment. I didn't feel any of that fear or less than in those rooms anymore. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel better. I mean, being high, you know, is, is a good feeling. Usually the first time you do it, but what it did is it just numbed me. And I don't, I think forever I was just looking for a way to numb myself and not feel what I was feeling. I couldn't handle feeling this angry and this fearful and confused. I couldn't deal with it anymore. And these fucking little white pills just removed that. And I walked in and out of those rooms and I was, I didn't think about what other people were thinking. My inhibitions were less than, and I just, I still allowed all the trappings of Vegas to contribute. But now, now I had another influence that even made it a better deal for me. Like I didn't have to be me at all now. And that's where it started. I can look back on it now and, and see it. Like these were all dominoes that fell that night. That were like the tipping point. Like everything had led up to it, but like... I can think back and it, and it seems palpable to me now because I'm like, I was just hoping they wouldn't say my name. The thing about Vegas is most of the time you can just go there and there's so many famous people there that I was nowhere near famous enough to get recognition and I could just kind of be a fucking deplorable individual and it didn't matter. But when we went to these fights, if they gave me those ringside seats, it was almost quid pro quo. Like we're going to say, you know, you're here, the free room and all the comp stuff. Was the trade-off worth it? I, I don't know. I will say, you know, when I look back on it and, I, and how much destruction it caused my life, I mean, we had a fucking lot of fun, too. You know, I, I when we'd go, we'd have a blast. But as a 44-year-old, looking back on it now, I'm like, I was, what a piece of shit. I, <laughs> I was, you know? I wake up in the morning and I'm just like, I don't really remember what happened last night. And I think that's the point. You know, my, my entourage, my buddies who are with me all the time, the ones that are just riding the coattails, be looking at each other going, God, our boy is a fucking mess. But we can't, we can't derail this train, man. This is, we're having too much fun. That's what was going on with my guys. They couldn't do it. A, they didn't know how I was going to react if they tried to, because they've seen what I do. Like, I will push you out of my life. I pushed my parents out of my life. If they told me critical things. You know, so they've seen it in action. So they weren't definitely going to do it. So we go down to the gym. And I remember we go down to the gym at the MGM Grand. And there in the locker room is Magic Johnson, my fucking hero growing up. Magic Johnson knows who I am. Ryan, what's up, man? And again, I'm just kind of dumbfounded. But then my mind immediately goes, he's, look he's looking at me with shame. You know, it's just shame. And I remember fucking immediately when he ducked out to go take a shower, I fucking immediately went into my locker there where I had some pills hidden from the night before and I fucking popped him right then. My mentality or my mental health was like, this guy just looked at you and he laughed at you in his mind. You are a fucking 
loser piece of shit bust. And I wasn't going to feel that way in that moment. And that just that just kept the cycle going. And this this stems back to how I was treated by my hometown. This stems back how I was treated by the media, by girls growing up. And I couldn't feel that way anymore. And that's where it started. And that's what it was all about. Then it was all about just fucking having enough pills at any given moment to not feel anything. That's that's all it was about for the next eight years of my life. Snowball's effect, right? It just keeps building up and building up. And so you go back home, right? I go back home to the wife that I was supposed to be faithful to, but you know, when I was going to Vegas, fuck, it didn't matter. No morals. So I come back home and I'm living a lie at home. I buy her a dance studio. She was a former dancer. I pay like a fucking hundred and twenty-five, hundred fifty thousand dollars for you know, in a commercial business park, a, a place for her to teach kids and just do what she loves. So now. She's putting everything into that now because she has an identity. Before, she was the wife of Ryan Leaf. That was the identity. So she's gone all the time, which I love because now I'm home and I can just fucking take these pills and just be a zombie all day long and no one knows. No one knows. You know, her dad's asking, is he ever going to come into work? <laughs> and I'm like, I sent him enough clients that had enough money that it was generating enough for him that he couldn't be like, where the fuck is he? I'm not going to send him a paycheck anymore. So again... Now I'm getting fucking super fat. I'm not working out, taking these pills. It was before like Postmates and everything, but there was once like this delivery service and I was just eating from a couple different places, like pickup sticks and like a Greek. I mean, it was just bad food. I was completely depressed. The diagnoses definition of I'm it. I'm self-medicating. I'm not seeking any kind of help. Peyton Manning is starting to make his run now to the playoffs where he's gotten incredibly good. So now that comparison is is widened so much further and it's uh, ammunition for the writers every year. And then every April, no matter what, no matter what, we're 22 years removed from my draft. The biggest bust in history conversation is going to come up and my name is going to be floated around and thrown around as one of them. Don't be a Ryan Leaf. I get that every April. It's just it's just how it goes. And the NFL is the biggest thing in the fucking world, right? So it's always this big deal. And so that continued to happen through those years. I'm just, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'm just a mess. Ultimately, I get to the place where my wife's starting to figure out, so what do I do to extinguish that, like, possible thread from being pulled? I just fucking leave her. I said, this isn't working out. I can't live in San Diego anymore. Your life is here. I'm out. So I bail and I divorce her. And I go, I'm going to go back to where I was the star, where I was the hero, Washington State, Pullman, Washington. And I'm going to finish my degree and I'm going to get into coaching. That's how I fix all this. Geographic change, right? The problem is when you're the problem, no matter where you go, there you are. It doesn't fucking matter where I was at. Vegas. San Diego, Pullman, Tahiti, who fucking cares? I'm the one that has the problem, and I haven't told anybody that I am a raging drug addict that needs to be medicated to function now. I'm not even getting high anymore. Now it's just a matter of function. Otherwise, you wake up with shakes and withdrawals, and you're sweaty, and it's just it's a fucking mess. So I went back to school. You know, I thought, you know, my mom, like, okay, he's leaving the marriage, but he's going to do something he always promised he would do for me, and that was get his degree. 
And I go back there and it was just, it was worse. Fucking blew a hell of a lot more money because it was further from Vegas. And now I was renting the private planes in Pullman, Washington, picking up these fucking just hanger on cousins, they call themselves in Montana on the way down. We go to Vegas. We play golf all day, gamble and drink and party and screw around all night. That's what we do on the weekends. Then I go back. I was not the normal college kid. And I still thought that impressing women was all about like money. I remember I remember my cousin who was finishing up his degree there, his his beautiful wife to be, like introduced me to one of her soccer friends, like as for a date. And I can't do anything fucking normal. I, I can't like go, hey, let's just go down and have a slice of pizza or anything. I was like, I know she's a Supersonics fan. I'm gonna fucking rent a private plane. We're gonna fly over to Seattle. We're gonna sit courtside. Shard Lewis is gonna come over and sign a sign a jersey for her. Then we're gonna fly back on the plane and hopefully I'll get the fucker on the way back in the plane. That's where my mind is. Because I didn't think I was worth a shit. This was the only way that a woman would actually accept me. They wouldn't accept this fucking loser-ass bust, overweight, has-been piece of shit. That's what I thought of myself. I literally did that on a date one time. It was just a disaster too. I mean, complete disaster. We were flying back, the fog was in, we had to land at a different airport. My cousin's girl had to come pick us up. It was just, it was a fucking shit show. But I, again, I just thought that was how you impressed women. I came home for Christmas break one time to the, to, to the family home. I had just, you know, left my, my wife. I was divorced. I was a failed football player. All these things. Grandpa had passed away the previous year, I believe. And so they asked me to sit in kind of, they asked me to sit in grandpa's seat and I was so like nervous by seeing my family and like all of it. Like I took way too many pills and I was like the epitome of what you see on TV or, or see in the movies or anything like that of a person just completely like nodding out and everybody in the family saw it. But the thing about my family is that no one ever fucking says anything. Everybody just kind of hides. And for the first time, my parents confronted me when we got back to the house because I was heading back to college and they asked about it and I did like a, they asked about it and I said, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been taking these uh, painkillers. I've been in some physical, you know, I could always go to the physical pain of everything. I got beat up for a fucking living, right? And I even made a, like a, you know, pointless gesture. I was like, it's not a big deal. I'll just throw them in the toilet. You know, they were talking about sending me to rehab or something. I'm just like, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't even really, I didn't know what rehab was. I just thought it was like, oh, another failure. This would be another failure for me. And so when I got back to college, I kind of, I kind of cleaned up for a couple weeks. But I mean, if you don't, if you don't fix the root of the problem, it doesn't matter. You know, I just started taking pills again and just really lying to the family now back home saying, yeah, haven't taken any since I've been home and everything like that. And I get my degree. Uh, one of the hanger on cousins graduates from college at the same time. I'm a 29 year old graduate from college. I want to go to Europe because that's not what everybody does when they get done with college. They, they go abroad and they fucking backpack. And my cousin who just graduated is going to come with me. And of course, you know, he can't afford it or anything like that. So I foot the bill for everything. We don't stay in hostels, right? We stay in intercontinentals and fucking Four Seasons and Ritzes and all that shit. We have a blast. I can't get the drugs over there for whatever reason. 
I'm very particular. Like, I'm not a guy that goes, like, we go to a club and somebody has some cocaine or heroin or something passing around. I'm not like, okay, I'll, that'll do. Like, I'm a very snobbish druggie. It, it's Vicodin. I want fucking Vicodin because I li like how that makes me feel. I don't need an upper. I don't need cocaine because I don't fucking... I'm already wired piece of shit, right? I want to be sedated is what essentially what I want. And uh, I, we couldn't get it over there. They're like Canada. Like, they sell coating across the, the counter. So I would take that from time to time just so I wouldn't be, like, completely in withdrawals. And then I just drank my face off everywhere we went. But the trip was therapeutic in a way where I didn't feel judgment or fear. But as soon as we landed back on U.S. soil, like, that was all back. One of the pharmacies, online pharmacies down in Florida that I was ordering them from. I was ordering them online. I'd go to doctors, but you could get them. You could order pill mills online and get them mailed right to your fucking house. So when I get back, my parents confront me about it. And I'm like... Yeah, you get rid of them. I'll get rid of them. You know, I'll just get rid of them. I haven't, you know, must have still been sending me shit, you know. But I was so, like, happy. I hadn't had any for, like, you know, as long as I was in Europe. Those fucking 90 pills went down in, like, a couple weeks. And off I was off and running trying to figure out my next step. And so, you know, my parents have tried. But they just, they didn't know how bad the money issue was with me. Because I wasn't honest with anybody about it. They didn't know. But you got to remember, too, I was still 13 or 14 years old in my mind, right? I've been that way forever. As soon as I figured out that I could throw a football and make everybody go, ooh, and ah. Oh. And I was just this child blowing millions of dollars. And when you're making $5 million a year, but you stop doing it, you're not making any money anymore, but you live like you're still making $5 million a year, that shit goes away in a hurry, right? I'd spent it all. I think I had like $50,000 left. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, so I reached out to my old coach and I started inquiring about coaching jobs because like anybody, like one you cannot do anymore, you teach is kind of the, this is the way the line goes. Well, now maybe because I actually am an adult, but not then. Then it was about like, oh, let me get to the highest level of coaching who, you know, those guys make two hundred fifty to $500,000. It was all about money. It was all about prestige. That's still what was in my mind. And so I ended up accepting this small Division II job down in West Texas A&M. And what a lot of people don't know, I assume when they hired me, it was a paid job. I took the job for 500 bucks a month. $500 a month. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And when I got down there, the reason I found out that they gave me a $500 a month job is because they thought I was still the millionaire because I hadn't told anybody that I had blown my fortune. That was the last piece that I held on to. That was the most embarrassing thing for me. Not the fact that I failed at football or even at the point that I'm a drug addict at the time. The biggest fears in my life was just people would know that I wasn't rich anymore because that would have taken away all my identity. That was the most fearful thing I had. So I go down to the coach in this little town called Canyon, Texas, which is about 15 or 20 miles away from Amarillo. And Amarillo was a decent-sized town in Texas, West Texas, really flat, you know, about 250,000 people. So it's a big enough city, but it's still kind of a country feel. And I, I enjoyed the coaching part of it. But I didn't tell the head coach. It's another opportunity for me to tell the head coach that, like, I'm a fucking mess. You know, I'm a drug addict, A. B, I have no money, so you have to pay me more than 500 a month. 
remember renting that U-Haul to take my remainder of stuff down there to, to move into this little one-bedroom apartment. Oh, how the mighty had fallen. I had, yeah, I had the inner shame, but optically, for those looking at me, I portrayed that I still was this millionaire, right? Kept a hold of these two cars, right? I had a, a CL600. It's a V12 Mercedes-Benz that was fucking amazing. It was fast. And then I also had a Dodge 1500 truck. And I was waiting for my NFL severance. That was going to be that was going to be big. It was, you know, it was going to be anywhere from 130 to 150,000. So I was waiting for that. But like when I look in the mirror, I know who I am and what I, what it's going to go to. It's going to be about impressing other people and uh, establishing a a image. That's that's what more about that money was than it was self-help literally no money in the bank account driving down to texas from montana how scared i was how fearful i was driving down there doing that thinking about it now i try to i try to put myself back in that position and i try to do that throughout my life putting myself back there so i don't forget or how i feel and i just i can't remember i know how fucking scared and fearful i was but i can't remember it right now if this is really truly going to happen I can't feel it. I can't feel the shame and the guilt and the fear and all that stuff. I, I gotta be, I gotta be numbed out from this. And I couldn't do that either because if I can't get any pills, how the fuck am I gonna do that, right? One thing is moving to a new state and a new community is that now you had fresh access to new doctors. So they became my pipeline for a long time. One guy, I think was the team physician. I remember I came in and we talked about my you know, my wrist injury and how much I hurt it at practice and how it's affected me. And he gives me a, a prescription for 90 pills with like three refills. You know, fucking doctors don't know. They, they spend like literally, somebody told me like four hours of their three years of medical school on addiction issues. So they don't see addict behavior or anything like that. And for me, manipulation was what it's all about with doctors. You, you're, you're not transparent. You lie. If some, and he was like enamored. He's like, we sign these autographs, these Dallas Cowboy pictures for my kids. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And then what I found out is this doctor, right? Anytime a player, like when I was playing, anytime a player got hurt, you know, he would prescribe them some. And I became the coach that I would go pick up their pills for him. Sometimes I wouldn't even tell the player that the doctor had prescribed pills for him. It's, it becomes such a psychological thing that it was the first thing you would think of in the morning. You wake up and you'd go, okay, do I have pills? And if I don't, how do I get them? That's that's all it was about. And I remember this offensive coordinator, I was the quarterback coach, and my quarterbacks were fucking unbelievable. Led the nation in passing every year. Were tremendous. They were good kids too. I never, you know, meant to hurt them. Coaching is a privilege. It's it's not a right. And there's consequences to your actions. So what I ultimately ended up doing and which ended up costing me my job there it would get me in the crosshairs of the law for the first time is I started going to players and asking for their pills. And when you're a 19-year-old kid and a hero of yours who played in the NFL who you want to be comes to you at your home after you've just experienced a devastating injury and your season's over and he's asking for your pills what do you do? You're so freaked out and you give them to them. 
because that's what you think it is. But then you also do what every kid who's 19 years old is, and you call your parents. And I took these pills from this young man who had just been injured, and he didn't know what to think. So he called his mom, and his mom did what every mom should do, and, and that's protect their, their child. She did it a couple different ways. One, she called my boss and explained to him what was going on. And then secondly, she sent a anonymous email to ESPN. 